Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. Today, I had one of the most interesting and unique and really deeply touching conversations I've ever had on the podcast. And I had it with Dr. Jacob Hom. Dr. Hom is a clinical psychologist, associate clinical professor of psychiatry at Mount Sinai, and the director of the Center for Complex Trauma. And listeners might remember that we had Stephanie Fu on the podcast earlier this year to talk about her wonderful book, What My Bones Know, and her related experiences working with and trying to heal from complex trauma. And Dr. Hom was the therapist that she worked with, and she detailed her experiences working with him in that book. And so I begin the conversation, as I normally do for these conversations, asking Jacob about his personal background and about the work that he does and how he kind of thinks about complex PTSD and these different kinds of trauma. And man, he he was not having that one. And I mean that in the best possible way. And he very quickly moved us and moved me from this conceptual, tools-driven, how-to, kind of typical podcast episode that you'll you know, you'll hear in this space and you've heard me conduct probably many times in the past listening to this feed into something totally different. And he did that just by being who he was and by showing up in the room as this very whole and authentic version of himself. I found this conversation fascinating. It's one of my favorite ones that I've ever done for the show. I completely appreciate Dr. Hom for for doing it with me. It was super valuable personally. And We did also, you know, along the way, cover a lot of practical material that I think could be really helpful for people who are trying to work with their own painful past. But what I I really hope that you take away from this conversation is the feeling of it and the tone of it. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Jacob Hom. So Jacob, thanks so much for joining me today. I've been really looking forward to this one. It's so nice to be here, finally. Thank you for having me, Forrest. Super happy to. We had a a little back and forth of the planning phase where we had to move the podcast and you were just a total gem about it. So I appreciate it. And I would love to start just by introducing people to you a little bit more and particularly asking you the question, what drew you to this kind of work, specifically working with trauma? There's so many variations to this origin story. I didn't want to be a psychologist to begin with. And so I was kind of resistant to it. Didn't like anything I was learning in grad school. Trauma was actually the only thing I did like. I think it's because I was going to be a monastic. I was going to be a monk. I think that's what I liked most. And then trauma was the only diagnosis in the DSM that we had to memorize that actually acknowledged that suffering was a huge part of what we were dealing with as therapists, whereas everything else was kind of medicalizing it or turning it into a biological condition. And trauma was actually the only place where suffering and travesty was acknowledged. And it turns out that there's really crazy science that happens when you actually see the impact of trauma and stress on the body, on generations, on genes, and all this other cool stuff. So it became a perfect nexus for both the science and the, and the spirituality or the suffering of what people came into the door for. And it stopped me from thinking that I was... Um, manic depressive, borderline, narcissistic, Mm. OCD, or whatever it is, like whatever Mm -hmm. we were studying in the DSM every week that I would suddenly have, you know, as we were like going over the (laughs) symptoms. And it's just like, ah, finally, someone gets that all this stuff comes from pain. 
If you don't mind me asking, were there things in your personal background that you were trying to understand through this inquiry? Sure, of course. Um, And generationally too, because I'm a Korean immigrant and my mother's a North Korean refugee and and my parents survived Japanese occupation. And Korea's kind of like Poland, where it's just like, it's a hot commodity. It's a hot real estate property and everyone wants a piece of it. And even now, like the U.S. won't leave like the most coveted land in the center of Seoul. So there's like ancestral trauma that gets passed down in the way that my parents live, in the way that they parented, in the survival strategies that they try to teach us, and in the dysregulation that might have happened as a result. The other really cool thing is that if you are not healing and growing as a result of the work you're doing, then I think you're doing therapy wrong. Hmm. Or you're going to be bored with the work, maybe. I don't know. It's just going to become a job and it's going to become mechanistic. But I welcome the fact that it's a humbling process to keep learning about how to help people heal and benefiting from it at the same time. Yeah. So you're already highlighting that there are different ways that, of course, like there are, you know, an infinite number of difficult experiences that a person could have in the course of their life. And there are different ways that trauma can show up for people. You mentioned intergenerational trauma, the ways in which we kind of hand these things down over time. And so I'm wondering how you kind of conceptualize those differences and how the differences between them can show up for people in terms of their experience. I, I, don't, I don't conceptualize. Mm, okay. I don't like that question. I'm sorry. What do you mean by I'm that? I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. The way I work is that I look at what happens now, how you enter my room, and then I work out from there. Mm-hmm. And so we might weave a narrative that has to do with intergenerational trauma or contextual trauma or that process of meaning making isn't, it's an exercise. It's not the goal and it's not the truth. Sorry, I know that that sounds very vague. No, I think this is really interesting, just so you know. I'm trying to get at how do we get away from a conversation that's going to get us stuck in ideas and in our head into a true felt sense of what we're dealing with and how to be present for what it is that people suffer. Mm. And if we are going to use the head for that, then I I use the head for understanding what's happening in the moment with a person. How do they come into the room? You have the, you have such a wide range of presumptions or states or ways of entering a room or entering a relationship. And since I'm a therapist, I'm the constant. And then I see like, hundreds of people. And so I have this huge like collection of possible ways and I try to make sense of the patterns of the way people show up, both when they walk into the room, but then when they're activated, when they're vulnerable, when they're hurt, all these uh, notions of rupture is what I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rupture, repair, yeah. Yeah, how they leave moments of connection. And that's what I'm obsessed with. So all this mm. other stuff, which is really important and true, the contextual, the intergenerational. I only care about how it shows up with my patient in front of me in the moment that I'm with them and how it impacts me. Yeah, well, then just to ask you about this, doctor, in my, I'm not a clinician. I'm just somebody who talks to people like this about this kind of stuff. And I've tried to become educated about it, but I don't have that kind of experience really sitting with somebody doing that work in a deep way. And My limited experience around it is that it can be helpful for people sometimes to be able to kind of have a box 
to put their experiences into or a so framework true. to sort of, yeah, conceptualize what's happened to them. Like you were talking about I at know. the beginning, you know, oh, it was helpful for me to understand that these things were coming from pain and it wasn't that I had this label of yes. borderline or whatever. And so that kind of like a conceptualizing process, I, I think can be useful, but I'm just wondering how that shows up more like in practice. Exactly. So what would happen is that um, I look for it to show up first. And then you have to combat all kinds of shame and self-consciousness. And that's where maybe the explanations of putting things in a box is an important first step in kind of bracketing shame and self-consciousness. But you're right that sometimes knowing and understanding trauma processes can also help us have more tender, compassionate understanding of why we act the way we do. So it is true that your question, there can be a really valuable outcome to understanding all of these factors. Mm. The dilemma that I have or the, my counterpoint is that if we talk about those first, they become reified, they become mm. static, they become a false idol or a place to stop and think you're done or it's not actually, it's just the first step. If I get it wrong, people will feel misunderstood. If I get it right, they'll feel deeply understood. But both of those are false way stations along this process of self-discovery. And so I'm, I'm still hesitant to even go there still because yeah. I don't want to shortchange the person's own experience of self-discovery. Is that how you think about this process in general? Like working with past painful experiences, call it you know, trauma or complex trauma, whatever like the word is that you want to attach to it, the difficult things that we go through. Do you think of it as a process of self-discovery? Yeah, it's all process. That part mm. is true. The part I'm hesitating on is whether it's just self-discovery. I'm sure there's a lot else in there, yeah. Yes, yes. There's like understanding human nature in general, understanding your parents, understanding other people. And the worry about the word self-discovery is that it also feels like it's trying to get to a truth, whereas I'm still focused on just opening up a process. Mm. Like my ideal outcome for therapy is that a person leaves with some useful framework for understanding human function, other people, but they have a tolerance for complexity and ambiguity and a capacity to like see the best in people, give people the benefit of the doubt, have grace for themselves. So it's all process stuff, not enough, not something discovered, but to be in a state of constant discovery, maybe. I don't know. That sounds really hokey. Well, you know, it can both sound a little hokey and be really true. And I, I, I don't know. I'm, it's so interesting where we've started here, Jacob. I, I think that like what I'm, what I'm, what I'm attaching to is just your, how you mentioned at the very beginning, how you had a real interest or, or thought that you might pursue like a monastic life, a serious engagement with that kind of, you know, meditative practice or whatever. I, I don't know the tradition was that you were interested in, but where you thought that that would kind of be your leaning. And then, you know, you end up becoming going to medical school and becoming extremely credentialed. Like you have a very impressive CV, the whole thing. But just the way that you talk about this is quite artistic. Like it is, it is quite open and, and spacious. And I don't know if I'm finding the right words here, but I, I hope you kind of get what I'm what I'm saying. I I know, and I feel like you're outing me in my academic job and like <laughs> my, 
They're going to kick me out for not being academic. No, you're, enough you're, you're a secret artist, doctor. You're a secret artist. I it's always great. have been. I've always wanted yeah. to be an artist, but mm. I couldn't as a first generation immigrant. That'd be, wow. I couldn't do that to my parents. Is that something that you've had to reconcile on some level inside of yourself? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't go into a museum all throughout college because I felt that the paintings were accusing me of forsaking them. And I went to Brown because I thought that I would be able to take classes at RISD. But the schedule never worked out. And so I felt like I had disappointed and betrayed my, my first love. Mm. And then I chose psychology because it felt artistic. I, I paint pictures with my patients. I tell them what I see. I, I tell them I see things visually and I surrender to the creative process. And that's the only way to do it in a satisfying way. Well, for starters, that's really lovely. And I'm thinking of your work specifically with Stephanie in the book, You Know What My Bones Now and how you're talking about this artistic impulse. And in talking with Stephanie and in reading the book, it felt kind of like, um, and I don't know how much you want to talk about this specific work with this specific client, but you can broaden it out here. It felt like she kind of came into the room with a, a lot of that top-down stuff that I was kind of coming into the room with too. Oh my God, yes. Yeah, yeah. and uh, We would have fights about it. <laughs> Okay, so I'm wondering, because a lot of people have that kind of top-down cognitive orientation or the way we conceptualize trauma, we use the word conceptualize, whatever. If you're starting to work with somebody who has that kind of an orientation, what do you do to soften that or kind of bring them into your end of the pool or do you just go with it? I do both. I try to give them enough of the science because I can still do that. Yeah. But I show them how dissatisfying that is. I say like, that's... Yeah, that's, an, that's like a crutch for your mind to catch up to the work that we have to do. But if, eventually you do have to dive in. And if, if the mental, if this mental making sense of thing helps you to be ready, then we can try that. But the water's still cold and it's going to be terrifying when we dive in. Mm. So I don't forget why I'm doing it. I think that's my greatest strength through the 20 years of practicing this muscle of being a therapist is constantly knowing the intention behind what the moment is and what my intentions are and trying to uncover what the intentions of the other is. I'm now thinking about myself because, you know, research is research and all of that. And I was like a very, I, I think that I popped out a very feeling person. And as many people are, I was rewarded for more kind of cognitive behavior as a younger person. And this for me led to a kind of pushing down or an avoidance of that softer underbelly of my experience for I think a long time. And then just again, speaking personally, when I was able to kind of return to it through my own process of therapy, and I was able to kind of get back to that over time. But when I first did that, it was extremely uncomfortable for me. Felt very vulnerable, very unsafe, very like, oh my God, there's so much in there. What do we do with all of that? And I, I come from a background where I, I have a zero A score. You know what I mean? I, I do not come from a particularly challenging background. I have loving and supportive parents, all of that good stuff. So I have to imagine that for somebody who didn't have those things, it's even spookier and even more difficult in a lot of different ways. And so I'm wondering, what do you do, if anything, to help people brave that and be able to go into that part of their experience when they've covered it for a long time in different ways? 
you have to show that you're willing to get dirty. Mm. You have to be rocked by what is said. The first time I heard someone really tell the gory details of their rape experience, I needed to throw up and I had chills going down my spine and, and I was like, nothing in the manual tells you what to do at this moment here. Right. Yeah. And our stupid profession is so reliant on manualized treatments. I'm like, where in the manual does it say, where's the bucket? Where's the chapter on the, <laughs> the bucket? Sorry for laughing, but yeah, I mean, no, right on. And so with that person, I had the courage to say like, I, I need to throw up. And she mm. said, I know. And it was the perfect thing to say. Mm. And it helped us to uncover more of the details and it helped me to brace for more because we shared in that experience together. So it's not the way you do, the way they, the question is, how do you help someone? The best way to honor how difficult it is, is to let it be difficult for you too, maybe is what I'm saying. Yeah. No, I think that's great. Uh, oh my God, the stories I hear are unbelievable. Hmm. They cause nightmares. They give me nightmares. There's, I have flashbacks to some of the, whenever uh, someone tells their trauma story well, it's traumatizing. It's disgusting, mm. disturbing, horrific. And then I know that we're in the good place. I don't avoid it. This is the, this mm. is the gift for them to honor me with the most atrocious thing that they can. And then I take that and I bleed from that. And then I let it go. I, I have to grieve it and, and be horrified by it. And then we process it together and we, we let it do, we let that trauma process us both. What do you do to let that kind of a thing go? Because, man, I would have a hard time letting that one go. There's no, see, this is the problem. As soon as you ask, what do you do? You're already in your head and you're out of the process. Hmm. Maybe a, a better way to ask it then is like, what are, are there processes that, that you use? Are there tools you rely on? Or? No, none. No? Yeah, none. I've tried. In the face of it, nothing works. It's all BS. Self-care is BS. Exercise is BS. <laughs> nothing what works. Do you mean? I've tried it all. Like in the face of overwhelming grief, there's nothing to do except be doubled over in pain and to just sob mm. until it just like comes out of you. Mm. And then it comes back in and like the cup full fills up again. And then you have to cry it out again. And you have to be held while it's happening. It, I mean, there is a process to it. It's not yeah. a how-to, it's just like a surrender to while also feeling loved, mm. being held, being witnessed. That's the hard part. The rituals of past societies have baked in the wisdom of this process and we, we're without rituals nowadays. And so then we're asking, we're looking for self-help solutions when we just need rituals that are shared by community. It's not rocket science. Yeah. Would you mind giving an example of what you're referring to? About a ritual? Yeah. Like what, a, what could that look like? It's as simple as just like losing it as like of having your ugly cry on of being drenched with sweat and tears and snot while someone's there to breathe for you while you can't breathe. It's hard. I don't necessarily accomplish that in therapy. We get to approximations sure. of it, but th there's still some release if, if done well. I, I'm not somatic, like in the true sense, like you're 
your partner's being trained in. Mm-hmm. But I make sure that this, the body keeps up with us, that the body is also harmonizing to the story that's being told and that mm. the, contributing to the, the song a bit. And then where there's nothing to be done. I'd need it. I just, there are some times whenever like my patients will share something and I'm like, there's nothing for me to do. You did that just right. Yeah. And, they'll, and they're like, what, what's wrong with you? Why are you so weird? And why don't you t- tell me something useful? I'm like, you did it. There's n- I, I, I will experience it sometimes, but other times it's just like, I honor it as it's being told. Mm. So I want to start by saying that I totally love what we've talked about and what we've been doing here so far. This is fantastic. And the reason that I say that is because you just alluded to my partner, Elizabeth, who isn't in her associateship as a somatic uh, therapist. And whenever I talk with her about the work that she does with people, she says a lot of the same stuff that you have been saying during this conversation in terms of like, there's an aspect to it where it's all kind of bunk. We try to systemize all of this stuff that we can't systemize. You've got a person in front of you who is deep in the weeds of working through the hardest thing a person can work through. And if you're trying to tell me that there's some procedural checklist I'm supposed to hit here, you are just full of shit. Like, you've never done this, clearly. And so much of it gets to the relationship that she's able to build with a person as a person and just being in it with them as they're going through this kind of a thing. And, you know, I have the, the in this case, cross purposes of a job where someone's listening to this and I'm trying to give them something, you know, but I think that the truth is in what you're describing with it as a process of feeling and maybe feeling through something and being honest with yourself about the experience that you're having. And like you were describing, having it flow through you to the best extent possible, understanding that that is an extremely high bar sometimes because this is really hard stuff. And so it's just so interesting hearing you hearing you talk about this, Jacob, from all of the experience that you have and just kind of like hearing that echoed in some of the things that she said and, you know, just highlights how, how ephemeral this stuff is in kind of a way. She's really lucky to be training now in this age mm-hmm. where it's more mainstream, even though it's still not endorsed in mainstream training yet. It's, you have to like seek this training outside of graduate school or whatever. All of that is true. And now I get to say that behind it, there's 20 years of practice. There's yeah. incredible amounts of technique and trial and error. And the technique is hidden in what do you do when you, how do you get someone to that place of surrendering to the, to the suffering? How yeah. do you note when it's present but not being acknowledged in the form of a rupture, like whenever there, there's reenactments happening in the room? How do you call out when people disappear or when they're, how do you manage the aggression that I invite? Because it's also part of the process of like bringing in the reenactments or the, dis, the, the dissatisfaction and all that stuff. And then how do you, how do you also um, manage love in the room? 
because I think that the work requires a sense of love being in the room defined as like a communion of two human beings bearing witness to something painful together while not letting that turn into anything more erotic, more counter-transferential or somehow like lose your bearing. So there's so much to be learned, but it should, on the, when you're doing it, it should look effortless, but it better take you a lot of practice. It's like the best, the, the peak performers in their sport should look effortless, but you have no idea how many years of practice it took to look that effortless. I've now listened to probably three or four podcasts that I could find of you talking with different people and reading Stephanie's book and things like that. And it feels like there's such a relational part to the work that you do with people. And you've talked about it here today already. Um, A lot of the time, and again, this is just my understanding, I'm not a therapist, but my understanding is that you're taught to keep a degree of kind of clinical distance from the person that you're working with to avoid some of the issues that you named, issues of problematic enmeshment or reenactment or something erotic transference, like whatever's going on there, whatever lingo you want to staple to it. And it seems like so much of your work is driven by this like close and authentic connection to the person that's in the room with you. And I was wondering if you could kind of speak to that a little bit. It's a, it's a scary thing. There's a reason yeah. why the profession has just said, let's just not touch that stuff at all. Yeah, totally, totally. It's, it's just too murky. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's way too chaotic and people are at risk, putting themselves at risk. Let's just not go there. Like take it off the table. But I, I found that it stifled the work. Mm. And the point is like you can still... You use it all because if your own body becomes the instrument for knowing what's happening in the room, then love and hate both become just signifiers of authenticity. So if I love a patient, it's not because I'm loving them in the way that I normally think of it. It's because we're in the good place. We're we're in authenticity and poignancy. And that's how I, I use that as a clinical tool to tell me that we're in the right place. And I also know that, but it, it's also really important for the patient to realize that when they are vulnerable and authentic and real, it naturally engenders love and compassion from the other. And this is something that most traumatized people do not get. That vulnerability is a very dangerous thing and you're going to get hurt if you open up. So... um I'm saying that because my experiencing or experiencing love in the room, when I said it's a signal, I didn't want to also take away from the fact that it's also a true human response when someone is authentic and deep Hmm. and, and expressing their pain in an authentic way. For people who have gone through traumatic experiences of different kinds, complex or otherwise, is there a, a stifling of what you're describing that poignance, that authenticity? Oh, whatever? good Lord, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Trauma basically just makes you, puts you in a box, compartmentalizes you. You become a fixer, a pleaser, whatever those archetypes are that people talk about. Um, you lose connection with what you really feel. You dissociate, you numb out, or you just become dysregulated, or you're lost in old patterns of reenactments. So 
the whole process of therapy with me at least is I try to help you see when you're like kind of in the weeds of trauma reactivity try to convince you that it's safe to like not be in that with me at least just with me for now and then you can go back into that very comfortable cozy protective trauma response if you need to but to practice going in and out of like love and fear presence and i don't know compartmentalization so it's kind of the the word i've heard peter livian use is pendulating there's a a movement in and out of it yeah exactly yeah yeah i was gonna say that word but i didn't want (laughs) to drop drop the lingo yeah yeah exactly If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at ZOE, and the ZOE Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney Show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast. But while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OSO1 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you.
Yeah, one of the things that I've just really heard you talk about that I found very resonant in my experience is how you work with anger and the ways in which you seem to support people in feeling very rightfully, you know, comfortable with the anger associated with the experiences that we've had as often something that we can kind of try to regulate out of people or push down. You're right. I, I'm hesitant because my relationship to anger, anger is morphing. I'm learning more about it. Okay, yeah. I'd love to hear about that. Originally, my proposal was that anger, we're, we do a disservice to anger as a society because we universally think it's a bad thing. But if we are being true to the idea that our body is just giving us another useful signal, then anger is often the energy that is saying that something is not right, something bad is happening, and I want you to protest this. I want you to fight this. And it, I'm going to give you the energy to fight off this thing that's causing harm or doing something bad to you. Um, in that sense, we have to heed the wisdom that is, or the perception and the, and the wisdom that anger is affording us of what's happening in the environment or in the relationship. That's the way that it can be useful. And especially for trauma, a lot of patients have that natural angry reaction to being abused but in fear they're not allowed to ex experience it and so reclaiming the capacity to be angry is an incredibly important step for a lot of people it's saying you did not deserve this this was not right what happened to you was not right so it's reclaiming self-worth in a way through anger in a visceral way your body is saying this is not right you deserve better Hmm. And then there's anger, again, a very, very dangerous experience because it can take over the body and it can cause us to lose our humanity or lose the humanity of the other person. It, becomes, it can be part of the fear response and cause us to create tribalism and, and violence, obviously. So it's a, it's a, it has to be tempered. We have to honor what it's trying to teach us but still decide very thoughtfully what we do with the energy that it provides us. Mm. Uh, we still have to stay in control. And then the other thing that I'm personally working on is the anger that just comes out of being dysregulated and tired and hangry. Because I have a young child and, I'm, mm. and I was like losing my t patience with him because we both had COVID and I couldn't nap because he, you know, the COVID wasn't as bad for him. But he and I were quarantining together, and so I had to be with him for 14 hours a day, and my poor brain couldn't do it. I mean, if you've ever read Sapolsky's book, Behave, he does such a great job of talking about how the prefrontal cortex is such a fragile part of our brain that takes up 30% of our calories and is limited resource and limited willpower, and then anger just takes over. And so I had did this practice of forgiving myself for being angry, knowing that I was COVID compromised and naming it for my son that I'm, I've been very grumpy and apologizing to him and letting him be mad at me for how I treated him. So we have both the dysregulated anger and the just anger. I allow him space to tell me how wrong it was the way I treated him. So finishing the, like letting his anger find release serve its mm -hmm. function um, and then sitting in the humility of 
of uh, how imperfect and hum human I am in, in that process. That's, that's, that's my most recent thinking about anger. I love that. I mean, there are some things that we're still figuring out how to talk about in the, the mental health, self-helpy world generally. And I think that anger is like toward the top of that particular list where it's just really hard to talk about it because there's so much yes and in it that you're kind of speaking to and what you're describing here, how like, yes, reclaiming the aspects of it where they're powerful and motivating and moving. And um, one of the things that Elizabeth's mentioned to me is that, you know, I'd rather work with somebody who's, uh, who's angry, who's pissed off than somebody who is more sad and depressive because there's more motion to the emotion. You can move it somewhere. It creates an energy in the room that can be can be used. And at the same time, exactly what you're describing. It's maybe our most destructive emotion. It leads to a lot of problematic behavior out in the world. I mean, individually in our lives and much broader than that. The other variable that I would add to what she's saying is whether or not there's a mix of presence along with anger. Because mm. if you're angry and you're just lost in strident outrage, then it's incredibly frustrating. I don't want to deal with yeah. that. Yeah, totally. But if you're angry and you're, and there's heartache as well as anger, mm -hmm. and there's still, like you're still talking to me as you're angry and you're not lost in it, then it can be a really workable presentation. Yeah, and even with yeah. the what she's talking about when people are disappeared, I think that the true variable that's happening is the lack of attunement or presence from the other person, and they're lost in their own despair. Mm. But yes. sometimes they can be in despair and be poignantly in despair, and then it becomes another beautiful, workable place to commiserate. I don't know how to ask about or talk about getting somebody to that place of attunement and presencing that you're describing or helping somebody find it. I don't know if I have the right language because it does feel like such a magical and individualized process yes. but i am deeply curious how you do that with people oh. but i i don't know if that's an askable question here if that yes. makes sense i love that i don't know how to do it either like yeah. i've been asked to write a book and there's a part of me that says no if you can put my ears on a page then i would be happy with that <laughs> but not my mouth i'm not as useless in this regard oh i love that that's a great line yeah, I was going to make the book just be uh, 300 blank pages and say like... I just, <laughs> did, the, did the publisher not like that? They weren't so into that? But it was going to be like, you write your story to me and imagine that I'm reading this. <laughs> but, so um, what's the point here? Yes, how you help someone get into it is that one, you have to do your own work of knowing when you're in presence or when you're in a fear-based survival reactive or fear-reactive, survival-based state of mind. And you can feel a difference. Hmm. And, that, and you have to like, metabolize your own shame around that, if you have any shame around that, and realize that it's just like you're the two halves of you operating healthful, healthfully. And then, because of the way we're designed, we can, we can tell when a someone is in fear or in presence. If you really f listen with your heart and your ears and your eyes or whatever. So then once you can tell, then you have to learn what you can say to help them to see it. 
This is where the rupture repair model can be a useful, like a, a proving ground or a training ground for this. But it has to be authentic to who you are as a person. It can't be trite or prepared because then that's also not coming from a place of presence. So there are sometimes when I do it very well where I'm like, what are you feeling right now? As a, you know, like a general cliche thing to say. But there are other times when I say, I'm not feeling this. I don't, this doesn't feel authentic. This doesn't feel real. What, are you, what is going on in you? Are you really feeling this as you're speaking? Or, or what is this? Is this a performance? So there can be more like high risk, explosive ways to do it. Um, mm -hmm. And it, sometimes it works. And sometimes nowadays, my people, the people who come to me know what to expect. So they kind of forgive the blundering attempts. But if you're not prepared for it, it feels very offensive. And it's definitely not something you do in a casual party or like in casual conversation. It's impolite to bring this stuff up, to make it, to make it explicit, to make the process explicit. You take risks as a clinician that I've essentially never heard anybody else talk about. Some of which are detailed in Stephanie's book, moments where you intervened around a, a, a thought she was having, or uh, I think that the explicit example was like calling her stupid or something about something that she said, which became a whole thing because people sort of didn't have the right context for it. Uh, but just what you're describing here, where, where you were talking about um, asking somebody in the room in a moment, like, wait, is, is that actually how you feel? Are you, are you being honest with me right now? This seems inauthentic. Or you uh, said another time saying to somebody, oh, I'm just really bored. I'm just bored right now. For starters, that's that's ballsy, and it doesn't come out. I don't say it in those ways, so it's yeah, couched, it's sure. couched with a lot of tentativeness and an apology, and it, it's scary. It's really hard to work this way. Yeah, and I, I'm wondering the care you have to have with doing that, which I'm sure you have. No, it's the care is there, but it's also I have an image of myself like. Uh, like a small part, an inner child part that just feels so ashamed of making a mistake and then having to just put my arm around it and saying, like, it's okay, you did your best and it didn't work. And there's still, like, you, you still do some good things, like some good comes out of you. You're not all bad. And there's a lot of, uh, you have to allow yourself to be crushed whenever it doesn't work. I can't always be careful. Yeah. Oh, it's such a lovely image for starters. Do you do that kind of, is is that sort of parts work for lack of a better phrase, a, a part of what you do with people regularly? Oh yeah, or? I love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. It's really helpful. It's something I've found really helpful personally. Yeah, for sure. And it's like uh, now best exemplified by internal family systems, but it's been around for ages. Yeah, even... The way that I do it, I just, I stumbled through like the way that Dick Schwartz talks about stumbling through finding it himself. And I said, okay, let me figure out how it works. And so I have my own way of doing it. That does feel a lot like I'm doing family therapy with parts and doing play therapy with parts and, and doing parent coaching with the people. It's all, all the same things that I've learned through all the years. And the essence of it is learning to be quiet and waiting for your parts to tell you things. So silencing the head and 
making more room for the body and the heart to speak and the gut, especially the gut. Learning to know your response to your parts and communicating those responses to your parts. That's a part, that's something that people often shortchange or they only have mean, nasty things to say to their parts because that's all they have ever heard and learned from their parents. And so in those moments, they're right to say, I don't know what to say, or it's, and, or they'll say something and I'll be, and then I'll say, no, don't say that. Take that back. <laughs> I'll say, here, let me, let me take over. Let me say something to your part. And then oh, you just okay, quietly cool. yeah. listen to see how your part reacts to what I say. And is, is that how you can kind of start to model a little bit of that different way of interacting with that piece of themselves? Yeah. But I don't yeah. ever feel like I'm using the word model. Yeah, I was a little hesitant to use it. I wasn't yeah. quite sure what the right word was. But. Yeah, me neither. It's like guiding them into a state. It's all, it becomes so abstract. Yeah. Yeah, it's really phenomenal. I love when I'm in that state. I think part of what we've been kind of dancing around here to, to put my language on it is just like finding different ways in for people, finding what's real in the room, what's authentic at the room, just like as it's happening. Again, I'm thinking back to the book that Stephanie wrote where she talked about doing Google Docs therapy with you, where you would, you know, record a session, go back and forth, be able to like, you know, edit it or, or reflect upon it or whatever it was that you were doing. And, and when I was reading that section and just from my own perspective, I was like, I don't think that you were trying to invent a methodology. I think that you were trying to find a way in that worked for this person. And that's kind of what it seemed like. And is that like just highly, I don't know, playful individual process, just like a part of what you're doing with everybody? Beautiful. Yes, I love that. Yeah. Again, I was able to play with it because I knew what I was trying to accomplish with it. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's not about the technique, it's about process and intention. And it became a beautiful place for us to look at our own process in a way that was one step removed enough so that shame maybe was kept at bay more. Shame and distance and then the, the heat of, of you know, the intensity of that process. Mm-hmm. especially for someone with trauma where they're going to think they're going to think that they're they're doing it wrong and they're a bad student or a bad patient or or whatever or they think that I'm being too critical and harsh and just trying to criticize them like the, without purpose all those fear-based reenactments are so like activated when we're looking at when we're looking at ourselves and so the Google Doc was a way for me to say like, oh, I hated when I said this. This was totally unnecessary. So I'm like being also self-disclosing about mistakes I make, but also saying like, you see here, do you see how you, you turned away from what we were talking about? You see how you went intellectual and you had just talked about heartache stuff and then you immediately go to your head. But I'm not saying that to judge you. I'm just helping you to see your own process, how, how you're dipping into pain. And then you go, and when you can't take it anymore, you go back up into your head. And you can do that as long as it's intentional. And some of the most beautiful moments I have is with p- patients who share an incredibly painful experience or state with me. And then the next week, they want to just like get my feedback about what shopping bag, what handbag they like better. I remember a teenage girl who did that. And mm-hmm. I would say to her, you know, you know, I know what we're doing. You know, I do. like, and she's like, I know. And I go, and she said, thank you or something. Yeah. Or there's another patient recently who, I said, you know, I know that we just went out of the deep stuff. She goes, I know. All right. No, I said, 
I, I want to acknowledge that I, I, I registered that we were going out of the deep stuff because I know, and like with some, like, am I doing it wrong? Are you like shaming, like reprimanding me? I said, no, no, no. I thought that it was like, you're just saying that you had had too much and that you needed a break. Yeah. And then that became a tearful moment for her because mm. she had never had attuned parenting before. It was always just like, do it my way or either being unseen or being coerced into things, not having agency in the, in the moment. Do you think that that conceptualizing, cognizing, moving to that, what techniques do you have? What skills can you give me, doctor? Part of it is, is one of the biggest blocks that we have to being able to interact with this stuff effectively? No, it just has to be put in its place. Okay, cool. It's, it's becomes a false idol. I forget what the Buddhist metaphor is, like staring at the finger that's pointing at the moon or something like that. Mm. You have to ask your dad about that. <laughs> we should do one of these with him sometime, by the way. Oh, he, would, he would be feasting right now, but it would also be fun to see you guys spar about some of this. It would be good stuff. <laughs> I was going to... I was trying to fit in a joke about how abusive he seemed as a parent and you must have bad oh, trauma, yeah. but I missed the chance. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think the, uh, the only, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to weave a joke in here too, about how we had very unusual dinner table conversations, but that was about it. You know, <laughs> Hey little forest, how do you feel about that? You know, that kind of thing, but that's, a, that's about as bad as I ever got it. So. Sure. Yeah. He seems yeah. like a really lovely person. Yeah, like I, for I, sure. I have patients as well as myself who are big fans of his work. Ah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's yeah. really lovely to hear. Man, this is this has been so this has been such an interesting conversation, Jacob. I've so enjoyed oh, this. You put me into such a different headspace that I that I normally am doing these, which I think is kind of the the best suggestion to people about how you approach this or how you think about it. Uh, just like the way that you are in conversation and how, like I, I walked into the room, I think understandably, with something of an agenda. You know, you go in, you wanna do a good job, you wanna ask the questions that people wanna hear the answers to, you wanna do the thing. And almost immediately, you subverted that, essentially. I, I don't mean that judgmentally, I just, you know, and, and you, you broke it down and you went, okay, well, let's go to the feeling level here, the feeling tone level. And I think that we were able to get there pretty quickly, and it totally changed the nature of the conversation. It became a much more authentic, lived-in conversation than me just kind of asking a guest a variety of questions about like what's it like to work with complex trauma. And you know that itself, I think, is like such a summary of a lot of what you've been describing here so far. I know. And right now, what I'm hoping for is that there's a listener out there, and I kind of want to give them a moment of silence to absorb and to tune into whether they're also entering a more spacious yeah. state of just wonder where it's like we're in a museum right now it's a little quiet it's a little it's like there's so many cool things to look at and we don't have to we can take our time and enjoy each painting that comes up hmm. oh if only we had a, a listener section where they could call in now. <laughs> <laughs> Do the old school radio show yeah, maneuver. Exactly. Right. You know, calling in from North Dakota. Um, if you don't mind me asking you a kind of edgy question here, Jacob, do you think that you can be a good trauma therapist without having been traumatized yourself? The requirements are that you have to 
have a good relationship to grief, sorrow, and horror. You don't need to have experienced trauma, but you have to be comfortable with the shadow stuff, the, the really scary, painful side of our experience. Yeah. Maybe it'd be better if you didn't have it, because then you don't have to have, worry about being triggered whenever you start seeing that stuff. Hmm. But I think I'm getting to a point, I'm trying to move the conversation to this other point about um, it, another Buddhist idea that the, I've come to conclude that the nature of life itself is this perfectly balanced experience of suffering and love or it's suffering in the context of love or something like that. Or it's not a, it's not equally balanced. Unfortunately, it's like mostly painful <laughs> with these like <laughs> blips of joy and laughter. Yeah. Sorry. My Sun God. through the clouds, the whole thing. Yeah, the metaphor that I've been using nowadays is that um, the, the very experience of delivery and pregnancy is our operator's manual for human life because it's like all pain, all like unbearable, overwhelming, near-death experiences. And you still choose it because the end product is this little pound of flesh that you just cannot love more. And you would do it over again to make another little pound of flesh this beautiful. And then all the pain melts away. It, like love is this piercing moment where suffering is the is the vast dark universe and love becomes just these brilliant piercing lights of stars or i don't know that seems to be the proportion yeah i feel like there's a huge amount of variation there of course in terms of like people's experience with it but maybe in part if you want to go to like the level of just how the brain works, a little negativity bias thing here or there, that's definitely what becomes really salient and in people's experience. And I think that a lot of people are just looking for some kind of a reprieve. You know, they're looking for a little bit more light through the clouds. And I know. I know. A couple fewer I, rainy days, you know? I don't really want anyone to think that what I'm saying is my, what, to take it as a truth. I think it more reveals the fact that I'm working with trauma all day long and my life, yeah. my personal life is hard. <laughs> if you have a joyful life, then I'm glad you do. And that's your lucky karmic <laughs> gift. But it's also like, uh, I think the more important point to make is to embrace the suffering, to not fight it, to not push it away, that it's a necessary part of life. It's an unavoidable part of life, mm. like the first noble truth, I guess, and change our relationship to it. Yeah, something that I want to find a way to ask about here is the masking process that can happen around a lot of this stuff. I think particularly for people who've gone through really hard things in life, there's often the construction of this exterior that protects those vulnerable bits that we've been talking about throughout. And how as a therapist, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, but my, my understanding is that part of your job is seeing what's underneath it and helping the person kind of look underneath it over time and become more comfortable with that and it being, you know, less of a painful process. But that's an incredibly hard thing to do. It's the first step. It like I think the IFS is correct that the first step is that you actually spend a lot of time with the protectors. You yeah. honor them. Yeah. You're like, what a clever boy you are for being so smart for like being able to come up with these strategies to survive and to not, how, how could you have kept all of those emotions inside you for so many years? That's incredible. You have such a capacity to, 
to suffer. It's amazing. <laughs> and look at you, like willing to fight back and s- snap back at someone who's like trying to hurt you. Good job. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So you you honor them. You give them gratitude. You say uh, the other thing that I love is that they're like your f- most loyal dogs, pets. You, mm. you say, I, I love you. I need you to be with me. I don't want you to, I'm not trying to kick you out of here. I just need you to stand next to me, not in front of me. Let me like face reality. But you ha- keep my back. Protect mm. me when I need it, but don't take over. And then, so after you do that bit of work, the... um lessen the pain of seeing the exiles or the hurt inner children or whatever it is. So I kind of wanted to not say lessen the pain. I wanted to say, be surrender to the pain of it, to, mm. to mm. accept that it's going to be a brutal, painful experience, but know that it doesn't last forever. Yeah. No, know that the more, it, I have this visual of like, when you allow your heart to be shattered, it actually makes it bigger and more flexible and it can contain more of life's experiences and more love and joy as well. And so you surrender to the, to the whole death of that, the death experience of severe pain, knowing that you'll be reincarnated into a greater capacity for living the next moment. To go to some of the Buddhist philosophy with it, you're relaxing, craving a little bit or clinging. Exactly. That's why I don't like how questions it comes from from striving and clinging and all that other active energy. Whereas when you said this is cha- changing my state of mind, I think because we're relaxing into a presence, not, not passive in a helpless sense, but just like a relaxed, wandering, leaned back sense instead of s- sitting forward. Hmm. Yeah, I literally did that a second ago. That's funny. <laughs> I was laid back in the chair in a different kind of way than I normally am during these. Yeah, it should feel like we're on a balcony drinking pina coladas or something, you know, enjoying (laughs) the mystery of life together. Cheers to that, for sure. (laughs) It's so delicious for a person who's strived and protected and fought their whole life Mm -hmm. to to get to this place. It's a miracle for them. Mm. We we can't take it for granted how important and nutritious and delicious this is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need some help with this next one here, Jacob. So, so you, can, you can lead this particular horse to water if you, if you find a way to do it. But I'm essentially thinking of somebody who's listening to this conversation right now who might not have access to a phenomenal clinician who can see them in this experience, relate to them through it. You know, they've got some good friends maybe, but, you know, it's just the resources are kind of limited. And I'm I'm wondering for that person, what do you think like helps them sit in that place more often or go through some of these things that we're describing that can be restorative for a person? But I don't really know how to how to ask this question if that makes sense. I don't and yeah. I have competing answers. Yeah. Yeah. Part of it is that um I don't think that professional help is necessarily the way to go. There's so many other ways to, to process this stuff. Like when we were talking about rituals and ceremony or yeah. groups, but I, I do love the idea that ideally we don't do this work alone if we yeah. can, mm-hmm. but it's really hard to find people who can 
sit in, sit in and bear witness to horror and grief. So you either find that kind of group, or you also have to learn to um, shape people to be the thing you need. And that's really uncomfortable. Oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right? My, what's your reaction? In this moment right now, it's my reaction. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm waking up. You just woke me up. I was <laughs> like, oh, okay. Shaping other people. I'm, I'm just curious what you mean by that. You have to say, listen, I know you're trying to be helpful, but you telling me what to do isn't helpful. That's not what I need. I just yeah. I need you to yeah. just wow. let your heart break with me. Can you just hold my pain with, without saying anything? Can you just be quiet while still listening? This, it, this is really hard for me to share, and I'm so ashamed of myself. If you give me advice, it's going to make me feel like I did it wrong, and I'm, it's going to make me feel even more ashamed, and I'm, I'm going to close up, and I don't want to close up. I really need you to be here with me. That's such a third rail for people, that kind of like vulnerable request in that way. Exactly. That's what we yeah. practice together in therapy. I, I do it. That's the kind of meta communication. I, I, I don't like that word, but courageous conversation that I'm willing to have with people. You try to mm. tune into what your body and your heart really needs and then say it with love and eloquence in a way that does justice to the poignancy of the request. It's a real bid. It's really hard to do. Most people don't do it, right? They're like, you're never there for me. You're not a real friend. Like they... They say it with accusation. Yeah, that's where that's where I'm going. How how to um, doing it skillfully, doing it sensitively, doing it in a way that it can be received by another person. I mean, man. Well, if you are in anger, then you can't artificially be what I just said. You'd have to change it. You'd have yeah. to say, "I'm really pissed off at you for not being there." So you say it, but from a distance still. And underneath my anger, I know that I really. It's there's longing, but right now all I can feel is anger. Yeah. Because I really want I'm you to get best. it right. Yes. Yeah. Because whenever I see that, I see Homer Simpson grab Bart. Yeah. Like, <laughs> anger's <laughs> trying to rattle you into presence. Yeah. Yeah. It's not mm. trying to kill you. It's it's not trying to get like to make you go. It's trying to make you really be here with me. Like, wake up. Please. I need you. That's what the anger is trying to accomplish. I'm trying to trying to wrap my fingers around something that maybe I should just be opening the hand about. I don't know. But basically, I'm, I'm, you'll see people have these breakthroughs sometimes where they're just in the cycle, in the cycle, in the cycle around something. And then just something happens. And it's hard to put your finger on what exactly it is that just happened. But something happens. Like uh, my dad will use the language sometimes like a switch is flipped. All of a sudden, things change. And all of a sudden, the person kind of goes from being gripped by the anger or being so wrapped up in the communication that they can't do it to just having the moment where it all comes out the way it needs to come out. It doesn't come out perfectly because it never comes out perfectly, but who cares? It comes out the way that it needs to happen. And I'm wondering just what do you think about that process, which can be such like a mystical and mysterious part of, of therapy? My first answer which I'm just going to throw away because it was, I don't really want to spend time on. I was um, framing it in like chaos theory and nonlinear dynamic systems theory. <laughs> it's like a tipping well, for point. for starters, love that, but yeah. <laughs> it's just a tipping point. Like what you're describing as mm -hmm. to, to seem like such a uh, surprise, 
but it's, it's actually the way that most organic dynamic systems work. That pounding the rock, a, pounding the rock. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but then the second, the more useful response is, I just had the image of surrender. Mm. Pounding the rock is that striving, whereas the surrender will actually yeah. loosen the rock, fat, like letting the fingers go again, like like you had said. Yeah. That seems to be such an important thing for people to learn, to loosen the grip on this process. But it's it's a it's a paradox because we still have to strive. I, I don't know how to make sense of that either. There's a certain serenity prayerness to the whole thing. Yes, there is, but it's a dual state. Oh, it's so interesting because the mind is floating and present, but there can still be like lower parts of you can be striving but the mind is still free. I mean, there's obviously just like, there's, there's so much here, Jacob. There's so much here. Um, there's, if we had, if we had another hour, I, I would ask you about ego and working with that, because I think that's kind of part of what you're describing here. That difference between like the drive and which is suffuse with clinging and craving and, all of the things that tend to lead to suffering versus this other part that is open and expansive and letting go and balancing the dance of these two things. Yeah, and I don't even want to talk about it. I just want people to know that that's a thing and they need to yeah, go experience yeah. that thing themselves to go look for it. Yeah, that's the point. It's like, hey guys, there's this beautiful museum that you can enter into that's full of wonder and authenticity and poignancy Come join us in that space. Be full of w- amazement and wonder and turn off your brain and just like let yourself, let your heart be filled up by what you experience and tell us about it when you're out there because it's so cool and the way you're going to experience it is so different. And it, it brings us into our own sacred place too when you share yours. And then we just keep growing closer to each other and closer to, I don't know, divine consciousness or if you want to go all woo about it. <laughs> <laughs> go all the way out there yeah <laughs> this has been really phenomenal jacob thank you so much for taking the time to to do this with me today i really appreciated this yeah, yeah thank you this was fun we co-created something lovely i think today i had just such a unique experience talking with dr jacob Hom about the work that he does with people to help them, God, I, I don't even want to say recover. I, I, something about that conversation, just like now I'm thinking about all the words that I'm using and is there a more kind of settled in and, and true and authentic way to to speak about this stuff. And, and that's what I think really came through with this one. A certain way of being, a, a way to relate to our experiences, a stance from which to hold them, this kind of lightening up and letting go and loosening the hand around the things that are the most difficult things, the most painful things in a person's life. And at the same time, I thought that it was so lovely how Jacob ended the conversation with this incredibly poignant and, I thought, really personally touching image of of going through the museum of life and seeing all of the beautiful things that are available in it and and the feeling of of wonder and discovery that is part of that process. Because, man, 
that feeling is such a huge part of what can sustain self-inquiry for a person. It's it's definitely helped me sustain some inquiry in, into myself. And the times for me when that kind of self-inquiry gets hard uh, and I start to feel like I'm kind of stagnating or I start to feel like stuff is really tough, I think that stuff really gets hard when I lose that feeling that he's describing. When I lose that feeling of wonder and joy and inquiry and interest in what's going on inside of me and what's going on inside of other people and in the world around me. And so if in this episode there there is a lesson of some kind, I think that that's a, probably the one that I'm going to take out of it. That, that feeling tone of more presence and authenticity and really sitting in it with another person. And frankly, it's something I'm going to try to take into the future conversations that I have on this podcast when I interview people. So this is going to be a, uh, a hard one for me to try to recap at the end here. And I'm mostly not, not really going to try. I'm just going to kind of mention some things that stuck out to me throughout the conversation. Really the relational nature of the work that Jacob does with people. How much of seemingly, and I'm, I'm putting words into his mouth here, but seemingly how much of his own authenticity shows up in the room with his clients. That willingness, like he was talking about uh, hearing the description of, of horrible things that had happened to a person. That feeling of like wanting to throw up and sharing that in the moment with the client and letting them see him be rocked authentically by what they said. Not in a way where they had to take care of him or or those things that sometimes we talk about in therapy where that you want to avoid with your with your clients, but just truly authentically as like part of his humanity coming to the table in that moment and then being able to see that and go, yeah, yeah, it is that way. Yeah, it is that real. And to really feel seen and heard by another person as such a deep part of the healing process and and such just like a key resource for people as they have often, you know, lived lives where they did not feel seen in that or they felt like other people did not care about them in that way and to see that really reflected in the person who's sitting in front of them. And throughout the conversation we did allude to some of the common challenges that people with complex PTSD or just, you know, more broadly people who have gone through really hard things in life. Uh, some of the some of the things that they tend to tend to struggle with or that tend to be key points or issues for them. Jacob talked about shame a lot. And he talked about insulating against shame and finding ways to get some separation from it. Uh, like we talked about the Google Docs therapy that he did with Stephanie Fu, how one of the one of the parts of that that was really helpful was the way that it allowed them to get some space from that and how they could like offer commentary on what had happened in the past without being in the moment of it where you're so wrapped up in it. And also as part of that, I, I kind of said this during the conversation, and he seemed to affirm it, that this was not an attempt to discover a new way of doing therapy. It was much more about finding a way in that worked for the person who was sitting in front of him. And that was really consistent with the larger conversation that we were having throughout the episode that focused on the profoundly individual nature of this work. How, yes, there is enormous technique in it, and that technique is learned 
through a huge amount of experience that Jacob has developed in really working directly with people. And when you watch the best people in the world at whatever their discipline is, you know, athletes, artists, whatever it is, it looks effortless, but it looks effortless because they have expended so much effort. So yes, there is technique there. But at the same time, whenever you start trying to systemize, you do A, then you do B, then you do C, something's kind of lost in that. And particularly for something where, where so much of what seems to help people is being seen in their individuality and the and their authenticity, like their own unique experience of what's going on inside of them, what they've gone through, and being related to fully as an individual. If they can see you kind of referring back to the systems manual while you're doing the work with them, just something seems to get lost in that process. And uh, you know, I don't have Jacob with me now to uh, to offer his views on what I just said, but I, I would be curious what his take on it is. And that does seem to kind of suffuse aspects of the work that he's doing with people, this, this deep commitment to a relationality and an individuality of whatever's showing up in the room that day, whatever the experiences are, whatever the emotions are, can they be seen and felt and appreciated for, for what they are? And one of my favorite parts of the conversation, no pun intended, uh, was when we talked about doing parts work with people and his sort of unique approach to parts work. And how he tends to start by really validating the parts of a person that have kept them protected, that have kept them safe. And I just thought it was really cool how that's where he started, you know, with like seeing the positive function that those parts were providing and really validating that on the way into working with all of the aspects of what make a person a person. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. This was a really interesting one, a really valuable one for me. I hope it was valuable for you as well. If you would like to find more from Jacob, you can find him on YouTube. I'll link to his YouTube channel in the description of today's podcast episode. You can find us on YouTube as well if you're listening to this rather than watching it. And if you'd like to support the podcast, the best way to do that is by subscribing to us wherever you're listening to it now on, or you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And truly the best way you can support the show is just by telling a friend about it. It's the best way that we have to reach new people. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.